Welcome all you back of the napkin ninjas, you elevator pitch artists, build a jet while you fly at school of hard knocks heroes, dreamers, doers, join us in the foxhole, in the arena of life. This is the Grand Plaster Podcast, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders, and the origin stories that made them who they are today. Hey everybody, Graham here with Lydia Kostopoulos. Hey Lydia. Hi, Graham. Nice to be back on one of your shows. Um, So to jump right into it, tell me about where you grew up, a little bit about your family and just kind of the maybe the high school years. What was that like for you? Well, uh, I was born in Florida and um, stayed there until the beginning of elementary. And then after first grade, um, my parents got a job in Germany working at a base. Uh, My dad was a professor um, on one of the bases that we have in, in Germany. And that's where I kind of went to second and third grade. I actually went to German school because my parents thought, well, we're in Germany. She, she should go to German school. It'd be great. She'll learn German. And uh, so without any knowledge of German, I went to German school and learned how to handwrite really well. And I learned German as well. Uh, I don't speak it now because that was kind of like a stint. And then, you know, we came back to the U.S. and there was no German. (laughs) So, um, but I went to high school, middle school and high school in uh, Texas. And we're in Texas. um, uh, Laredo, South Texas. And uh, then I, so I went to this magnet school that was for medicine because I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to help people. And uh, it was a high school that was for medicine. Yeah. It was a special magnet public school. Wow. And then the junior year started and I was so excited because we we're going to have scrubs and we we're going to go to the hospitals. And um, this was like the big leagues. And then my dad says, hey, um, we're moving. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, we're going to go to um, Sharjah. I'm going to teach at the American University of Sharjah. And I'm like, what, where, what? And then I look at the map and I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is so far away, away from my was friends. Was he a teacher really- before that? Excuse me? Was he a teacher before yeah, that? Yeah, he's a okay. yeah, career professor. Okay. And um, both of my parents love to move and love to see other countries, which is where mm-hmm. I got that bug. Got and it. so um, my parents gave me two options, graduate um, from high school as a junior or do senior year in the Middle East. So I got out of that medical program and then uh, graduated as a junior and then went to the Middle East where I uh, did my undergraduate and that's when 9-11 happened and that's what steered me in the national security space. Wow. Wow. Okay. So what was your undergrad in and where did you get it? So I went to the American University of Sharjah, um, which okay. is a sister uh, university from AUDC, so American University of Washington, D.C. And I did international relations and um, obsessively wrote every paper I could on the Iraq war. And uh, I couldn't get enough of it and continued my master's on the same topic, um, but I looked at peace and conflict resolution, and I thought that it was so incredible to get a new experience in the Middle East, having, you know, really been in the U.S. most of my life, and I thought I should do Europe, and so I did my um, graduate studies in Europe, and that was a great cultural experience for me to get other perspectives and other ways of approaching conflict and politics and um, seeing the world differently. 
I'm guessing by this time you'd start to pick pick up some other languages or at least conversationally. What what where are you now and where were you then as far as uh, you know, linguistics? Right. So um, my mom's native language is French. So technically, the, my first language in in Florida was French, but then uh, my mom uh, put me in daycare or pre-K, and then no one there spoke French because it's Florida, and so I would come home and speak. English and she speaks to me in French and then eventually it was just easier to everybody speak English so uh, I understand uh, French, um, but I have a hard time speaking so but my best foreign language is Spanish. Uh, I learned it actually in Spain uh, when I did my master's there, and so I am bilingual in Spanish. And then when I did my PhD in Italy, I learned Italian, uh, so I have an intermediate level of Italian and then I studied um, Greek and Russian and some Portuguese, Greek and Russian, I have intermediate levels, and then Portuguese is beginner, so. But yeah, Kostopoulos is a Greek name, right? Yeah, so my dad's side of the family is originally from Greece and um, spent some time there and uh, learned Greek. But writing is really difficult. People talk about, you know, language levels, and it's like, well, there's written, comprehension, mm -hmm. you know, speaking, all of those are different in terms of how you, how capable one is. Yeah. Okay, so you were basically in, in the Middle East and in Europe, basically nerding out on the Iraq war and, uh, you know, terrorism, you know, at, from an academic perspective. When did the rubber start to meet the road for you becoming an academic and, be, you know, become a practitioner after that? Um, so after I finished my PhD, which focused on uh, U.S. foreign policy on the use of force abroad during uh, Bush's first and second administration, um, I wanted to pursue a career in defense, and it started out with a role actually as a counterterrorism, well, terrorist analyst um, at a think tank in Spain. And uh, it was a really great experience because I got to look at all kinds of insurgencies and um, make all of that data quantitative to be able to assess and analyze it. So I guess this is kind of the early era of big data or managing data um, to understand patterns and all of that. So that was a great experience for me. And then it was just one thing that led to another, you know, you just meet people. And I think people take LinkedIn for granted, but for me personally, LinkedIn has been really amazing in terms of connecting with like-minded people who just um, have similar interests and, and opportunities. And so um, I eventually, ended up uh, back in the US and I started volunteering at Congress to get a better idea of how the political aspects worked in terms of legislating and all of that. And that was a really good experience to see it from the inside. And uh, then what, does that, I, what does that mean to volunteer at Congress? I mean, what were you doing exactly? So um, I was doing multiple things. I was doing some consulting at the time and then um, that was uh, but that was separate from the volunteering at Congress. And then I said, okay, I want to go. I just went to um, an office and asked mm. if I could volunteer. And I interviewed and I volunteered for three months. I worked at Congressman Langevin's office. He's one of the um, co-founders of the Cybersecurity Caucus. I was particularly interested in uh, cyber. Mm -hmm. And uh, they um, had me there like maybe two times or three times a week. And I assisted in the office with various things. Um, it could be uh, handling the mail or 
uh, talking to constituents to see what what needs they had. And it was really interesting to see the mail that came in and how the people of that congressperson's um, district cared about different issues. And there was even handwritten letters, which I thought were really nice too, just expressing kind of their needs and things that they were looking for. And that makes you feel like the democracy is alive when people are, are writing yeah. and engaging. That I thought was really nice. Well, it's really interesting, though, that you took the initiative to volunteer because, um, you know, I I talked to I've talked to thousands of job seekers in the national security space, and one of the hacks is always, well, why don't you just volunteer to do something, and you can get a foot in the door. I know Tim Ferriss, he wrote the book Four Hour Work Week. That was one of the things he recommended for a while. Is if you really are looking for opportunities in your life, the the great hack is to volunteer, you know, to do things. Uh, and then, yeah, no, like you know, right, right now, I'm volunteering on on different initiatives, like with IEEE. Um, if there's mm -hmm. something I can do around the AI ethics, I've contributed. Um, there's a multi-nation effort um, that's led by the Joint Staff J7, and it's on different topics. And right now, I am volunteering my time to contribute to the Human Performance Initiative, and uh, it's many people from different countries that are talking about how we can improve human performance um, in our forces. And so mm. I don't think there's a, a moment to ever stop volunteering. Just it doesn't matter where you are in your career. That's great. So where did you go from there uh, when you were volunteering on the Hill? And then uh, what was the transition to your current position? Oh, uh, there were many world hops before uh, now, so just as my parents moved around the world, they actually met in North Africa. Um, and I wanted to go back abroad again, and so I was doing some consulting and then I was volunteering and um, I got a job back in the Emirates. So I went to Abu Dhabi to work at a university teaching national security. I did that for a bit and then transitioned into management consultancy also uh, in the Middle East. And then I uh, just took time off. And I uh, resigned and decided to do a, a sabbatical. And I went to St. Petersburg, uh, Russia to do 10 weeks of a language immersion. And um, that was incredible. Um, I definitely improved my Russian language skills, but it's one of those things that if you don't use it, you lose it. So um, it's been a long time since then. So I, I'm probably very rusty, but I uh, explored all of the, um, different royal palaces there and uh, then I moved back to the US and then this time I was working at the National Defense University where I was um, the director of strategic engagement for the College of uh, Information and Cyberspace and that was um, very interesting to be doing pause, that. Pause there, how did you get into cyberspace from all this other stuff you were doing? What's What was the bridge? Oh the bridge was um, back when I was doing the terrorism analysis, I was noticing that terrorists were starting to use cyberspace. And that actually was the, the instigator for all my tech interest because it was just one thing after the other. So it was, okay, let's use social media to self-organize and disseminate ideology, but then that, that's one step. But then every year there's a new step, whether it's deep fakes or whether it's drones, I've um, consistently been fascinated with how technology um, changes the paradigm of warfare, conflict, et cetera. And so uh, that's then when I was um, back, uh, when I was volunteering at the Hill, I was also doing um, consulting around the, the cyber part and cyber strategy and cyber policy and all of that. 
Okay. So interesting. So okay. So you took over this new position with with cybersecurity in the portfolio, and then uh, what from from there? Um, after NDU, I went back abroad again, and this time around, I went to Berlin. Uh, Berlin has been on my list because Berlin is this place of so much cultural fusion. Um, it's it's got the the government, but it's also got um, people who are very artistic, but then also there's that that East-West Germany kind of blend. Um, so I just wanted to experience that. I heard a lot of great things about that city. And um, I got a job at a think tank there, um, the Digital Society Institute. And um, I was looking at emerging tech um, and policy and society and all of that. And I spent a year there and- um, How was your German that, by this point? Did you pick it up again or? No, I mean, like I knew a few words here and there, but it was not there. Um, and then, you know- so you, you didn't need German in Berlin to Well, I mean, it would have been helpful. Definitely. Yeah. It was hard getting internet. I will tell you that. Mm -hmm. um, it, but I, you know, you have an opportunity cost and you got to say, okay, well, I'm here for a year. Right what am I going to do with my time? You could spend it learning a language. And I can tell you as somebody who studied many languages, you really need to put the hours in. Yeah, We're talking, yeah. you know, minimum five hours a week and then like four hours on the weekend. And like, it's, you got to get the grammar books out. You have to be watching stuff. You have to be listening. You have to be translating. You have to be really on it. And for me, I wanted to travel Europe and uh, engage with the emerging tech communities. And so I went to a lot of AI conferences and, so I started um, trying to engage with those communities and that was more important for me that year. And then um, then my national security calling came back. And uh, then I went to Tampa to work at the Special Operations Command um, at the strategy office, um, looking at emerging tech threats. And then I went to JSAL and uh, assisted um, there. And I am still affiliated with the Joint Special Operations University. Um, more, I'm right now in the strategic engagement department and um, then I am now remote working from Scotland because I've taken on a role with um, a global American company that does cybersecurity awareness. Um, they're called Know Before and I've known them for so many years, super nice people. Um, so operate on every continent, several countries, uh, 35 languages. And I thought that that was like a fun next step to um, take on something that was global and that allowed me to remote work as well. And so now I'm doing Scotland for the year and that's kind of where I'm at right now. That's amazing, incredible. All right, well, what are you, yeah, what are you passionate about right now? Graham, so many things, so many good. things. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm still really passionate about special operations. I, I really do think that um, as we, we look towards conflict in the future, that special operations will be a very, very important linchpin in terms of how those conflicts um, evolve. And uh, so human performance, I'm really into that. Uh, my COVID project was um, sleep data and learning about um, women's anatomy and uh, the menstrual cycle in terms of human performance. And so mm -hmm. I am now uh, that volunteer thing I'm doing that I mentioned to you, 
I'm trying to contribute everything I've learned and what I've read to that project to see mm -hmm. if there's a human performance angle that we can look at that applies to female soldiers. And mm -hmm. so that's one thing I'm passionate about. Um, I am also passionate about getting more education into public schools that revolves around cyber awareness and disinformation. I just don't think that um, it makes sense to have public education without teaching our children what disinformation is, critical thinking skills. I, I think that that's an important part of yeah. democracy. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm hoping to kind of um, spread that word. And um, with no before, um, we've submitted a statement to the United Nations on this matter, um, sharing our views that um, we think that this is a form of cyber capacity building. And um, so I, I think that that's quite important. And anyone who can advocate for it, I think that they should. And um, lastly, something that always like I'm passionate about is our human relationship with emerging technologies, whether it's DNA editing or drones or the metaverse. I just I love having conversations with people to talk about these things. We are going to experience as much change in the next decade as we've experienced in the past 100 years. And this is because technology is converging at once. And we've got so many different people now who are part of this mix, innovating together the whole world. And that is thanks to the internet and the dissemination of knowledge for free. We've got so many tutorials online and all these other things. And so we're starting to see that technology innovation is accelerating faster than before. And that can be overwhelming. It can be like every industry right now has to um, take a, a cold, hard look at themselves and understand where they stand in the changes that are, whether it's Web3 or expectations about products or sustainability. There's just a lot that's happening. And I enjoy having conversations with people about it because I think that it's, it's understandably overwhelming, but we do need to talk about it to make more sense of it. So a couple questions so you i mean how do you, how are you defining innovation when you say innovation is accelerating so for example if we look at um, synthetic biology dna editing and artificial intelligence so you can now our dna can be put inside the cloud it can be digitized because um, the tools exist to be able to assess your dna quickly then you've got um, artificial intelligence which can um, look at your dna and look for things that could be malicious or malignant or could cause issues and then you can start to make decisions with your doctor about your health based on all this data. That's a huge paradigm change. And that's one that requires some knowledge, um, some informed agency. I, I mean, we all wanna have agency around our health and the decisions that affect our body and our future, but it's kind of hard to do that when we don't understand some of the technologies that are providing all of this new information that we have to process. So there, that's an example of innovation in medicine that um, we have to bridge that gap in understanding. Yeah. Now, last time I talked to you, I think you you shared a little bit about some of your artistic interests. Do you have any hobbies that you're passionate about? Yes. So um, my art interests are squarely around this. Um, so it's about like the human relationship with technology. So. Um, the the piece that I'm dying to get exhibited is um, I recreated Renoir's Luncheon of the Boating Party 
with technology superimposed. So for those who haven't seen the painting, it's located in the Phillips Gallery in DC in the DuPont area. I highly recommend it. It is one of Renoir's most famous impressionist pieces. It is a scene of um, a joyful gathering for lunch in a summer's day. And there's wine on the table, there's food, people are laughing and just um, enjoying leisurely um, activity. And so I took that one because I feel like it's something that we can all relate to the breaking of bread, the um, leisure with friends and all of that. And I've superimposed on top of that um, all kinds of technology that we have today. So Amazon Alexa, the iWatch, the, I, the earbuds with the headphones, the Wi-Fi, drones, um, some guys on Tinder uh sitting there and the whole point is for us to look at that scene from the past but reflect on our present relationship with technology mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that's why i'm just really excited to get that out there because i want to see people's reactions i want them to talk about this mm -hmm. and i'm very um pro technology but i'm also pro being aware of it and being informed about it and having one's own opinion about how where their lines are I think it's yeah. healthy to have some lines around technology. And then yeah. the latest yeah. thing I'm working on is a crypto um, project for art. And it is a neon light and it says cyber, cyber, crypto, oh, sorry, danger, danger, crypto. And the danger, danger, crypto piece is really about talking about how technology sometimes can start out as dangerous, um, but then with time, we find a way to make it work. So cars, cars just came about in our streets. We didn't have paved roads. We didn't have airbags, no kind of protection, no kind of system, no, no driver's license. And it was a bit chaotic and it was a bit dangerous, but then with time, it was such a force for good that we have found ways to make it work. And so that's one example of how something was dangerous and then it became better. And the same thing with electricity. Um, electricity can be dangerous, but it is such a force of good. And it's something that has made our lives better and we found a way to make it work and so with um crypto um cryptocurrencies i do think that right now is a period where it's tumultuous um there a lot of people can have lost their digital wallets or have had them stolen or they you know um unfortunately became victims of scammers and so there is a bit of a dangerous period but it will get better and so that's kind of the message around that piece yeah and yeah, um so yeah. i'm making 12 of no 21 of them to represent um the 21 million bitcoins that are out there so one for each uh, million that's great and have you also done work with jewelry i i don't recall if you've made jewelry yes yes yeah. so the jewelry uh is with the uh fashion label um that i started called empowering workwear and um so the the earrings which is the first uh product they're called the hypersonic deterrence earrings and they are actually ready as of a few weeks ago and uh so they will be going to market this year um in a few months i'm still working on printing the tops of the rockets that they go in i have to make everything difficult it seems um, but I just get too excited in the creative process. And I'm like, well, what if I could have these earrings be inside rockets? And mm. so I've 3D printed uh, with a friend um, a bunch of rockets, but they're missing their tops. So <laughs> I can't launch yet until the tops of the rockets have been printed. 
Right. So, um, and the, the thesis of the earrings is, is that, um, so the, the earring design is a minimalist Nordic kind of design that has the flight path of a hypersonic glide vehicle, and then a flight path of a ballistic missile. And it shows them juxtaposed one on top of the other. And it has rhinestones where the radars would detect them on their flight path. The message there is, is that for a ballistic missile, the radar detects it well before its peak and it's able to um, mitigate that uh, threat. However, with the hypersonic glide vehicle, um, it is only detected when it gets closer to the target. And even then there's very few minutes to respond. And so what the earrings tried to do is to show that this is a strategic weapon and um, one that should be considered on par um, with nuclear weapons in turn, whether it has a nuclear payload or not, um, but it should be considered from a policy perspective uh, on par with nuclear weapons. And I do think we need a deterrent policy for it. Mm. So um, there's 27 pairs. There are 27 pairs because um, Russia has claimed that the fastest theirs, their hypersonic weapons can go is a Mac 27, which is very, very fast. So, um, so there's 27 pairs because of that. And so there's, there's that, and there's others in the pipeline. I'm, I'm working on little by little. That's fantastic. All right. So if you have something that you'd like to share with your friends and family or colleagues, what's something that you recommend to them to do or to try? Well, um, those who know me well will know that I'm going to recommend the book, The Hundred Year Life. Uh, it is written by two London School of Economics professors. If I, I always tell people if I could recommend one book, that's the book. And the reason is because, um, so this book was written, uh, published in 2017, and it was trying to explain that we're living longer and that living longer actually means that we should be more deliberate about how we spend our time. And so if you are expecting to live close to 100, which um, you, I think we can see that we're seeing more people reach 80, more people reach 90, then we have to start saying, well, how do I want to manage my career? How do I want to manage um, my family, uh, my friendships? Um, there's, there is an aspect of the financial piece that they do speak to, but it's a tiny part of that book. The majority of the book um, is really about shaping a mindset, a longevity mindset, that maybe you want to take care of your health differently if you know that you're going to be living until 90-something. Mm. And I think that that mindset shift is very powerful because um, I think we can live more purposefully when we do that. And uh, so I recommend that book. And then uh, things to do, I recommend sleep. Uh, that's another thing. If you know me well, you know that I am like a big sleep fanatic. So I was really, I got into sleep um, a while ago, but then with COVID and the aura ring, I just, I'm like a sleep fanatic now. I love seeing the data and all of that, but actually sleep is really good for your immune system. It's great for your um, mental performance and uh, it just, you feel good. And I, I think people take sleep for granted, but it's actually uh, one of the best things they can do for their health. So I recommend sleep. And then the last thing is, since I am now on another um, adventure abroad, um, I do think that it is valuable to try and get outside your comfort zone as difficult as it is. I mean, I've done it many times and I don't think it's easy, um, but every time I've gone abroad, I have learned so much about others and so much about myself. 
And I think it's a, it's a fun exercise and I would recommend that people try that out. That's awesome. If people want to get involved with any of the projects that you're currently working on um, as volunteers or as teammates, um, or if they want to get in touch with you or follow you or read some things you've written, what are, what are the best ways to do that? Um, so reaching out to me on LinkedIn or on my website, which is lkcyber.com, or sending me a message on Twitter. My handle is uh, lkcyber.com. Um, those are the best ways to uh, get in touch with me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Lydia. And uh, you're an inspirational figure. So I, I just uh, appreciate everything you've done. Thank you so much, Graham. And I look forward to hearing all the other people you interview as well. Thank you for putting this together. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show today. I'm Graham Plaster, and you've been listening to the Graham Plaster Podcast. Get show notes and more at grahamplaster.com.